Hello, everybody. Welcome to our supplemental teaching in our series called Broken, Life in a Painful World. This is fun. I've never done this before. I've actually got nobody in the room right now. And so I am teaching to all of you via our website. Why are we doing a supplemental teaching? Well, that's a good question. Well, as we progress our way through Romans chapter 8, the second half of the chapter, that is, we come upon two verses, verses 29 and 30, that deal with a topic that is much debated within evangelical Christianity. I was going to, within the context of my weekend sermon, try to dive into these two verses and provide sufficient explanation, and I realized I just was not doing them justice. To tackle this topic, which is very sensitive, I thought it best to not be pressured by time. And so via a supplemental teaching, I'm able to dive into it a bit, and uh, we're able to explore this concept without being hurried. That said, let me, let me turn to them now. Again, Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. So let me read them. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Wow, what a verse. Well, the word that is just... uh, really controversial within evangelical theology is this concept of predestination. Predestination is a very popular doctrine within uh, a group of folks known as Calvinists. Maybe you've heard of Calvinism or Reformed theology before. They, they, they uh, grab the concept of predestination and build much of their conviction off of that term. And so I want to talk to you about predestination, and understanding this term, I want to work through these verses with you. But before I do, I wanted to just give you a little of the backstory of my personal journey with this uh, theological framework known as Calvinism. Uh, I was surprised when I arrived in seminary. I went to Trinity Seminary, which is the uh, seminary of the Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination. And, and when I got there, I, I naively did not anticipate that there would be theological debate. I thought everybody would kind of be in agreement. Well, not so. As it turned out, some of my professors were Calvinists. Some of my professors were on the other spectrum, uh, known by uh, a label Arminianism or Arminians. And uh, as I discovered, many of the students were Calvinists. Many of the students were Arminians. One of the things I appreciated about my time at Trinity is that these topics of theological debate were handled with passion, admittedly, but love and respect. There was an understanding that we were all brothers in Christ and we had a difference of opinion on this topic. And we were going to sharpen each other by discussing the matter but not divide and separate our Christian unity over the matter. And I think that's so important, even as we look at matters like this as it applies to our church. Folks, we have many in our church who would identify themselves as a Calvinist. And we have many in our church who would identify themselves as an Arminian. We have staff on either side of this debate. 
And I think it's important for us to commit up front that we can talk about these things and we can share our conviction and opinion. And even if we're having some uh, fun, wanting to grow in these matters, debate potentially, but not divide. To agree that we love each other, we respect each other, and even when others have opinions regarding theology that are well within the evangelical framework, but differ from other evangelicals, we got to be okay with that. Sound good? Well, uh, I got to Trinity, and I started studying this. To be honest with you, the notion of Calvinism was largely new to me. The, the, the doctrine of Calvinism emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything, and they take it to a very uh, far extreme, which would include the decision of people to have faith. In other words, those who have faith in Christ, those who are saved, they do so because of the sovereign choice of God. It really isn't their choice, ultimately. God chose them to have faith. God chose them to turn to him, and they turned in faith to Christ because he predetermined that they would do that. And so the consequence of that is a, is a great celebration of sovereignty. God controls everything, and everything is because he wants it that way. It's a I suppose a great celebration of, of uh, grace. They would emphasize that salvation is all God's grace. Nothing you've done plays any role in your reconciliation with God. Uh, but on the other side, an Arminian theology, as I learned to understand it, places emphasis on the, the love of God. Arminians say, yes, God is sovereign, he is in control, but when it comes to your spiritual destiny, when it comes to whether or not individuals are a Christian, Arminians emphasize the role of the free will. They believe that God is longing for all to be saved, that Christ died for all, has made salvation available to all, and therefore anyone who will choose to turn in faith and place their faith in Christ as Savior can be saved. Uh, and you could see the difference. The Calvinists emphasizing that it's all God's choice. You don't have a say in it. The Arminians emphasizing that you do have a say in it. You decide whether or not you want to turn in faith to Christ. So I got into the middle of this <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> went back and forth, to be honest. Uh, kind of flip-flopped quite a bit as I wrestled with scriptures. I had Calvinists tell me, you got to believe in predestination, Jeff. It's in the Bible, you know, in the passage we're studying. And I didn't want to deny any biblical doctrine, and so it seemed at times like Calvinism was the right option. But parts of it just didn't sit right with me. I, I had lived all my life believing that everybody had the opportunity to receive Christ, and <clears throat> this system didn't seem to uh, align with that. <clears throat> well, I went through a dark, time-scary journey, theologically, wrestling with this matter while in seminary. And as I dove into the biblical uh, texts that are relevant to this topic, in the end, I ended up in a position that leans towards the Arminian side of this. I, I hesitate to use that uh, label because anytime you use a label, people start jumping to assumptions about what it is that you believe. And, and I don't want that to be the case. 
Uh, I do have a strong belief that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to all, that God longs for all to be saved. My evangelistic passion is driven by my theology in that regard. Having said that, I believe in predestination. I believe in election. And uh, I'm going to try to clarify that as we go here. Um, Though I am on that side, I want to come back and say again that I love Calvinists. And we've got a lot of great Calvinists in our church, on our staff. And we choose to love each other even though we disagree on this topic. So with my confession of my theological bias, I'd like to now dive into the text and take a look at what does predestination mean then. And so if you will, join me. In this passage that we've already read, uh, it, it describes God's many blessings, many graces. Do you remember Romans eight twenty eight? For uh, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The, the context is the emphasis on our God working for our good. And the Apostle Paul turns to this beautiful description of, of ways that God works for our good, particularly in the, the rescue, the saving work of God. Some theologians call this the golden chain, and I like that. In fact, I'd like to go through and kind of highlight the words here. It says, for those God foreknew, that's the first step. Uh, He also predestined, that's the second one. So God foreknew, he predestined. And then skipping down here, it says, and those he predestined, he also called, is, is the next step in that golden chain. And those he called, he also justified. And then those he justified, he also glorified. So one, two, three, four, five. Five theological concepts, each related to God's saving work in our lives, but each pointing to a special grace that God has shown us. Let's go through them, shall we, and take a look at what what they mean. For those God foreknew. The Bible teaches that our God has foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is his ability to see the future. Nothing that happens in our world is a surprise to God. In eternity past, God could look into the future. Unlike us, he has the capacity to know all things. And so God, in his foreknowledge, knows people. Before we were ever created, before the earth was made, God knew us. He could look into the future and see us, see our hearts, see our will see our choices. And I believe that the emphasis here on foreknowledge is there because God in eternity past looked forward and he knew, he knew those people who would respond in faith to him. Of all the decisions we make, of all the things that are true about us, I believe the most significant is this central doctrine of faith. Will we turn in desperate faith to Christ? And so God knew those who would turn in faith to Christ. I want to clarify something. Some people say, you know, faith is a work. Faith, you know, if you think that you're saved by faith, then you think you earn your salvation. And I do not think that faith is a work. I think faith is the anti-work, if you will. Uh, A work is something that we do to earn something because we deserve it. Faith is the acknowledgement that we've got nothing that Jesus is our only hope. Faith is that desperate cry, I'm empty and hopeless. All I've got is you. Faith is not a demonstration of accomplishment. 
Faith is a demonstration of desperate dependence. Faith says, you are all I have, Jesus. And so I believe that faith is not a work in that it deserves no reward. It is not an accomplishment. It is an acknowledgement of emptiness and desperate need. That being said, I believe that God sees all people in his foreknowledge. He knew there would be some who would respond to him in faith. And back then, in eternity past, God made a decision regarding those he foreknew, and he made a decision called predestination, or he predestined them. The concept of predestination is found in our Bible four times. The word predestined is used as it relates to God's saving work in us. Twice here in Romans 8 and twice in Ephesians 1. That's only four times in the Bible that the word predestined is used. And what does it mean? Well, the term predestined just quite simply means to predetermine something. That there was something God way back predetermined. And the big question is, what did he predetermine? Well, a Calvinist would argue he predetermined who would have faith. And, uh, you know, respectfully, I would disagree with that understanding of predestination. I, I believe that to determine what God predetermined or predestined, we have to look at the context. And we have to ask ourselves in those four occurrences, two in Romans 8, two in Ephesians 1. What do those passages say that God is predestining? Well, let's look here. It says, those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, This conforming of our character to the very image of Jesus is a theological concept called sanctification. Sanctification is God's work in us to change us, to grow us, to mature us to make us beautiful, like Jesus. God decided, not only these people I foreknow, these people who will have faith, not only am I going to save them, I am going to transform them to be like Jesus. Not just reconcile them to me, but make them beautiful. And so God decided beforehand, according to this verse, that sanctification was going to be his plan for those he foreknew, for those who would place faith in him. He predetermined that before anything began. Now, that's one thing that's predestined here, to be conformed into the image of his son. The second uh, predestination is over here, and it's really just a reference to the first here. And so both of these would be talking about being predestined to sanctification. I'll simply mention that in Ephesians 1, as you go to the two references that are there, The first one talks about God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. The doctrine of adoption was a decision God made in eternity past where he said, those who are going to be reconciled to me, I'm not just going to end being enemies. I'm not just going to become friends. I predestined, I predetermined that I am going to adopt them as my child. In Ephesians 1, the second occurrence of predestination has to do with being chosen to be heirs. And to be an heir is really an application of the doctrine of adoption. This is where God predetermined not only will they be adopted, but as adopted children, they will be owners, beneficiaries of the inheritance. And so here's what I would say. 
As I understand predestination, it is God describing what he predetermined he would do in the lives of those who were his. He did not predetermine who would place faith and be his, but he predetermined what he would do in the lives of those who are his. Stuart Briscoe, a pastor up, uh, was a pastor in Elmbrook in Milwaukee for a long time. He describes it in his commentary on Romans. He describes it in this way. He says, if my wife invites you over for spaghetti dinner, whether or not you come to dinner is really up to you. But if you come, it has pre- been predestined, predetermined that you will have spaghetti. And that's kind of how it is for us. The Lord has predestined, he's predetermined that those who are his, he's going to sanctify them to be like Jesus. He's going to adopt them as sons. He's going to make them heirs of the kingdom. Whether or not we come is our free will choice to play faith, place faith in Christ or not. That's our decision. But if we come, here's what he's predestined to do for his believers. All right, so let's move along on the golden chain. Uh, it says that, that he might be, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The, the notion there is that why is he predestining us to be conformed to be like Jesus? Because the beauty in Jesus, the Lord wants that to be a picture of the beauty to come in all of us. As a firstborn sometimes gives you a taste of what the rest might be like, so Jesus and his beauty gives us a picture of what God intends his children to all become like. Moving on the golden chain, we now get to the word call. Those he predestined, he also called. So these two, the foreknowledge and the predestination, were back in eternity past. Now we're moving into the present where God's calling action on us is his wooing us to come to him. One of the things I believe in strongly is prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is a doctrine that was uh, clarified by John Wesley. Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church. And the Wesleys talked about prevenient grace. In other words, if God didn't call you, if God didn't pursue you, if God didn't woo you to turn to him in faith, nobody would turn in faith. And I believe that. I believe if God didn't act first, we never would respond to him. But God does call And God does woo, and God longs for people to come to him, and he won't force anybody. Uh, The Calvinists believe in irresistible grace, that no one can resist the wooing of God, and I don't believe that. I believe that though God calls and woos, he doesn't force. He wants the decision of faith to be our choice, and that's something that's forced on us. But God woos us and he calls us and that wooing calling is a grace, beautiful grace of God. And those he calls, he also justifies. When those he foreknew and predestined respond to his call in faith, then it says he justifies them. The doctrine of justification is an absolutely beautiful doctrine and that Doctrine is the application of the cross of Christ to our status with God. And we go from being guilty sinners to forgiven, and we're given the righteousness of Jesus. Some have uh, said, you know, it's just as if. You see, just if. 
It's just as if we've never sinned. That's what justification is. It's this beautiful cleansing and wiping away of our guilt and our sin where we are justified and made pure and clean in the, in the status of God because of the cross of Christ. That's justification. But then it says, those he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is the final stage in this sanctification process. Remember, God wants to make us like Jesus. And though we are partially like Jesus today, we will be fully like Jesus in heaven. When we get to heaven, the Lord says he will glorify everybody. He will wipe away the last remnant of sin in us and perfect our character. That's glorification. Glorification is that stage that will occur in heaven when God's graces have been fully accomplished in our lives and we reflect the character of Jesus perfectly. How beautiful will that be? Do you see Paul's point here? God is for us. He is seeking our good again and again in everything. He, through foreknowledge and predestination, his calling, justification, glorification, God is constantly fighting and blessing his children. The overall takeaway of this text is to help us see how passionately our God loves us and how much he is doing to woo our hearts and bless our lives and forgive our sins. And our response should be, how amazing is it to do life with a God who is so devoted to our well-being? Folks, Calvinists, Arminians, we agree on this. Our God is amazing. His goodness to us knows no ends. We will spend all eternity marveling at the wonders of his work on our behalf. We will love him more and more and more the more we understand all that he's done for us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you and worship you and praise you for your saving work in our lives. We recognize, God, no matter what theological uh, convictions we may have, we all agree, you have been so good to us. You have come through the person of Christ to save our souls, and you are gracing us in our past and in our present and in our future. And we love you, Lord, we love you. We are amazed at your outrageous generosity towards us. How can we respond to all this goodness you're pouring into our lives? All we can do, Lord, is give you our lives. That's what we do. Even now, take us. You gave all for us. We give all for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.